want to invite you, if you will, to take your Bibles or open up your smart device in the Bible app that's on there, and let's navigate over to Romans 8 together. That's where we will be picking up and continuing in our Experiencing Grace sermon series and study of this section of Paul's letter to the church in Rome there. I'm so glad to be able to be here with you this morning to lead us in our time of studying God's Word. I'm so thankful for the privilege that that, that, that is. And that's something that I say each time that I have the honor of being able to stand before you in this way. But just in light of everything that's happened in this past week that we've just prayed for, I've just had my thankfulness for you specifically renewed this week. It's been so encouraging to see just within minutes of that tornado coming through our immediate community for my phone to begin going off as people are texting, checking on one another, looking for updates on members, on brothers and sisters in this faith family, asking for ways that they can serve, coordinating initial responses, how that's continued over the past few days and will continue in days to come as you serve so selflessly, not only brothers and sisters here in this faith family, but other neighbors, others in our community, strangers that we don't know, how you're working together with brothers and sisters from other churches, from Highlands, from Asbury, from Oak Mountain Presbyterian, from North Shelby Baptist, and, and many others. It is so good to see the people of God doing good. And not only has that renewed my thankfulness for you and for this church family, but it's also renewed my thankfulness to God. Because whenever we see the people of God doing good in the midst of tragedy, we're reminded that even in our darkest times and our hardest struggles, that God himself is still good and that he's still doing good. And I was struck anew by that this week as we were looking ready to come here to Romans chapter 8. Because we've spent some time over the past few weeks and some heavy passages in Romans. If we kind of reorient ourselves to where we are in the flow of this letter, especially looking back at Romans 7, we see that in the first six verses that the law of God is like a condemning and merciless husband who is lording his power over us, beating us down in the ways that we don't live up to his expectations for us until we're finally released from our union with that law, so we might be united with Christ. But then in the next verses, in verses 7 through 13, we see that it's not the law itself that's a problem. The law is actually good. The law is useful because it's through the law that we're able to get a glimpse of our own sin, to see that we are sinful, that we are law breakers, that we are someone in need of rescue from our sin. Then we get to the last few verses of chapter 7, verses 14 through 25, and Paul gives us a very personal account of what it's like for him to continue in his own struggle with the law, with his inner desire to do good for God, and yet his flesh working against that so that he does the evil that he does not want to do. And when he ends that passage, he ends it by saying this, Romans 7, 25, so then with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. It's not a feel-good moment at all. It has us looking for something more, for something better, because, of course, when we read this passage in Romans chapter 7, I think we can't help but intimately identify with the struggle that Paul himself is having. We too know what it's like to not do the good that we want to do, but the evil that we do not want to do, that for that to be the thing that we actually 
do. I know that I feel that in regard to my own sin, and I don't even have to expand into all the 613 commandments of the Mosaic Law. I can just focus there on the Big Ten. And right at the beginning, to see that it says to do not have any other gods before him, to not have any graven images, and to not make for myself any idols. I want to be clear, I only believe and only worship the one true triune God of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But when I'm faced with hardships in my life, when there's sorrow, when there's stress, when there's tragedy, when I'm in need of comfort and escape, a reassurance, if I'm honest with you and myself, too many times I am not going to God for those things. I go to food. And in so doing, I'm taking food and I'm putting it in a place that is rightfully God's. And that's having something before him. And that's making myself an idol in my life. And then if I go on down the list and I see, do not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Y'all, I feel I, I covet. I feel jealousy in my life. This week being spring break, earlier in the week, I would open up social media on Instagram. I would see pictures of all these amazing trips and amazing things that people were doing that some of you were doing. And I was so jealous of it. I took it as a personal attack on me that you wanted me to feel terrible about myself, that I wasn't getting to do those same things. I look to some of my brothers and sisters I went to college and seminary with and where the Lord has led them in their own ministries, and I'm jealous of what he's doing with them. I covet it. It's not good. It's wrong. It is sinful. I'm not doing the good that I want to do, but the evil I don't know what to do, that is what I'm doing. And I have a feeling that you know what that's like as well that we can find ourselves crying out along with Paul, what wretched people are we who will rescue us from this body of death? But thankfully, Paul doesn't leave us in Romans 7. He doesn't end his letter there. He comes out of that heaviness, out of that weight, out of that darkness, and he points us to God's goodness. And he begins that here in Romans 8. We've gotten glimpses of it along the way, but now he shifts to focus on it completely. So read along with me what he wrote next. Romans chapter 8, just the first four verses. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You know, many people consider Romans 8 to be one of the, if not the greatest chapters of scripture in all of the Bible. And there's a number of reasons for that, but I think one of those reasons is because it stands in such stark contrast to what becomes, to what comes immediately before it in chapters six and seven of Romans, where we're dealing a lot with sin. We're dealing a lot with the law that's revealing our sin. 
We're kind of coming out of that, like we said, not having a feel-good moment. We're not feeling real good about ourselves. All along the way, we're getting glimpses of God's goodness. We're getting glimpses of grace. But then Romans 8 is just full of grace. There's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace of our good and gracious God. And we see that grace standing in contrast to the sin and the law. And we see that grace wins over it and grace triumphs over it. And so what I want us to do in looking at just these first four verses of this great chapter is to see three ways that our gracious God gives us good, gracious gifts. And the first one is this. By God's grace, we have freedom instead of condemnation. We have freedom instead of condemnation. Now, condemnation is what we expect coming out of Romans 7. We see that when we were united with the law, we were failing in the law. We were breaking. We were lawbreakers, transgressors against God's law. We see that even once the power of the law was released, that we were released from that power in our lives, that as Paul describes in his own struggle, that we still have a hard time keeping the law. We still find ourselves failing. We still find ourselves messing up. We still find ourselves breaking God's law. And so we expect there to be condemnation because that's the natural result of law breaking. There must be a just punishment for it. We expect that whenever we see the law broken around us. Think about the two other tragedies we've seen over the past few weeks, the mass shootings in Atlanta and in Boulder. We condemn those shootings. We condemn that senseless murder of those victims. We condemn the motivations that are behind them, not knowing exactly if it's racism, if it's misogyny, if it's some kind of other hatred, but we condemn whatever it might be that would drive someone to do that. And then we condemn the perpetrators themselves, the lawbreakers. We expect them to have the just punishment that they deserve. And Romans 7 is revealing to us that we're the lawbreakers. Therefore, we deserve condemnation. We also deserve just punishment. And we know from earlier, from back in Romans 6, what that just punishment is. For the wages of sin is death. We deserve to be put on death row. But then we get here to Romans 8.1. And Paul tells us that for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, which means those of us who have turned away from our sin, that have been released from the power of the law in our lives, that have been granted new life in Christ through faith in him, that for us who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. And he's not just talking about in the future. When we stand before God as our judge for eternity, that he's not going to condemn us to eternal punishment. That's true, but that's not all that Paul has in mind. He says there is now no condemnation. There is now no deserving of just punishment for you. It's not a possibility for you now or in the future. You've been completely forgiven, past, present, and future. It's done, it's taken care of. That's what we mean when we talk about justification, to say that we've been justified. It means that God looks at us who are guilty of sin, and instead of declaring us guilty, he declares us not guilty. He declares us innocent. He goes a little further and he says, he declares us righteous but also paul reveals that god doesn't stop there not only does he not condemn us but he also sets us free 
He gives us freedom. It's not a stay of execution. It's not a temporary reprieve. It's a, it's a full pardon, true freedom that can never be taken away from us. That's what Paul was getting at back in verse 6 of chapter 7. After he talked about our marriage to the law when he wrote, But now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us, so that we may serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the old letter of the law. We've been freed. We've been released. But that freedom that God grants us is costly. See, when God threw, up the, threw open the prison gate of our death row cell and let us walk away scot-free, he then sent his son inside to take our place. See, condemnation was still deserved. There still had to be just punishment for the law that was broken. The wages of sin had to still be paid. And the law couldn't do it. The law couldn't measure up. Why? Because it was weakened. It was weakened in our flesh. This is what Paul's writing about earlier in chapter 7, in verses 7 through 13. That the law is good, but it reveals our sin. And then it's been corrupted. Because not only does it make us aware of our sin, it just shows us that we're sinful. And then also provides the temptation. And we just find ourselves just wanting to sin more and to break more law. That's all the law can do for us. It's weakened by our sinful flesh. It doesn't have power. We need something better. We need something stronger. So enter God's own son, whom God sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. And what exactly does that mean? Well, the, the sinful flesh, that's like us. That's people. We are sinful flesh. But Paul writes that God sent him in the likeness of sinful flesh. Another way to think about that is in a way that resembled sinful flesh or resembled humanity. Okay, well now it seems like we might be tiptoeing up to something that's not quite right. Does this mean that God was not fully human? That Jesus was not fully human here on earth? No, of course not. He was fully God and fully human. He knew what it was like to live in flesh to take it on upon himself. He knew what it was to be hungry, to be thirsty. At the end of a long journey, he experienced exhaustion. At the end of a hard day's work, he had aches and pains and soreness in his body. He could catch a cold. He experienced joy and sorrow, experienced disappointment, and he experienced temptation to sin. It's not that Jesus was never tempted to sin. He knew what it was like to be tempted to sin. He was like us in every way, like sinful flesh in every way, except one big one, and that's this. He never actually sinned. He never actually gave in to the temptation. That's why he only resembled sinful flesh. He was fully human, yet he was completely sinless. And that's why he could be a sin offering for us. See, the concept of sin offering comes from earlier in the Old Testament, from Leviticus 4, when God laid out a plan for people to have their sin paid for and to be restored into right relationship with him. And the plan was different depending on if it was a priest who had sinned, if it was one of the leaders of the people who had sinned, if it was the corporate group of the people who had sinned together, or if it was just kind of an individual layperson, it would all be different. But what was common between them is there would be an animal who was taken. This animal must be unblemished. It must be the most perfect specimen of this kind of animal. And then that 
priests or leaders or persons or group of people sin was symbolically put on this animal and then their blood was shed in order to pay the penalty for that sin so you could be restored in right relationship with God. But guess what happened the next time the priest sinned or the leader sinned or the people sinned or the person sinned? They had to do it all over again. Sin offering must be made again, but not so with Christ. You see, all those animals to sin offerings, they were not like us. They had none of the likeness of flesh, but Jesus did, yet he was unblemished since he had never sinned. But what he did when he went to the cross is he took on our sin, your sin and my sin, not just a sin, but every sin for everyone and all the world for all time, all of them. He took them on himself, and Paul writes that there, God condemned sin. The just punishment was paid through the death of Christ. And then when we find ourselves in a Romans 7 struggle, where our flesh and our mind and our spirit is wrestling with one another, and for whatever reason, the flesh wins out temporarily, and we find ourselves falling back into breaking the law in some way, we don't then have to go back to Jesus and get him back up on the cross again. No, it's done. What the law could not do, weakened by the flesh, God did. It's done. What Jesus said on the cross that we'll celebrate this Good Friday was true. It is finished. I came of age in the church in the 90s in student ministry. And there was an illustration our youth ministers would often use at various student ministry events in which they would have a big wooden cross at the front of the room and they would distribute to all of us little pieces of paper. And on those little pieces of paper, we were supposed to write our sins. And this was really tricky for a teenager because you had some big sins, but you didn't really want anyone else to know about them. So you would try to write it in like code of some way, like God would know, but no one's else. Or you would like write it with your left hand so no one could you know, recognize your handwriting, unless you're left-handed, then you had to go the other way. But you would do that, and then the youth minister would invite you to bring it forward, bring your pieces of paper forward, and he'd have a hammer and nails, and you'd hold your piece of paper to the cross, and you'd put a nail there, and you'd hammer it to the cross as a picture of what Jesus has done in taking our sin upon himself on the cross. Now, I can appreciate what it was supposed to be a picture of, but there's something that I really don't like about that illustration, and that's that there were multiple events where multiple times I was bringing the same sins back to the cross over and over again. But it had already been taken to the cross 2,000 years ago. It had been done. God did it. What the law could not do, God did. He condemned sin in the death of his son. But of course, Jesus didn't stay dead. Today's Palm Sunday, and we are looking forward to Easter next week, to the resurrection, to celebrating Christ's victory over death in his new life, a new life that was not just for him, but that was for us as well. So that by God's grace, not only do we have freedom instead of condemnation, but by God's grace, we also have life instead of death. We have life instead of death. Yes, we know that the wages of sin is death, but 623 doesn't end there. We then know that the good gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or think about how Paul put it in his letter to the Ephesian church that we studied around this time last year. 
In Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, Paul wrote, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You were saved by grace. No wonder in our old state, prior to being in Christ, we couldn't keep the law, right? I mean, who is ultimately the least capable of being able to keep any of God's commandments? Dead people. They can't do anything. It was the law of sin and death that was at work in our lives, but it was the law of the spirit of life that set us free. God, by his grace, made us alive. When we celebrate baptism, we get a picture of that every time that we are buried with Christ through baptism into death. And then we're raised to walk with him in new life. And this new life, again, it's not just about the eternal life that we'll have with him forever and ever. Of course, it includes that. But this is also about what Jesus promised when he came here to earth. That he came that we might have life and have it to the full. And that life, just as we have freedom now instead of condemnation, we also have life now, full life in Christ now. That's the only reason that we're able to have a Romans 7 struggle. Dead people don't struggle with their sin. They lay there dead in their sin. People who are alive in Christ, we fight sin because we have his life at work within us. In fact, that's the very reason that he raised us to new life. So that we might worship him and honor him with our lives. And that that would involve living in obedience to his commands. In other words, those who have new life in Christ, we actually obey the law. Look at what Paul wrote here. He said he did this. He sent his own son in likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us. What exactly does that mean? Are we talking about just the Ten Commandments? Is it the full 613 of the Mosaic Law? I mean, what about all the new commandments we get in the New Testament? Some of them that Jesus gives himself. Is it all of those too? Well, let's consider what Jesus has to say about the law. We're going to look specifically at what something he says in Matthew 22. Following his triumphal entry on that first Palm Sunday... A bit later that week, some of the religious leaders come to him to challenge him. And one of them, a so-called expert in the law, he comes and he asks Jesus a question. And the question is this, which command in the law is the greatest? Now this religious leader is trying to trap Jesus, but there's a way of reading this in which it could be a really helpful question to ask. We're called to, in our new life, live in obedience to Christ. And there's all these different commands that make up the law that he calls us to. Well, if, if we could just start with one and kind of getting it really good and under control, which would that one be? Which would be the most important? And so this is how Jesus responded. Matthew 22, 37 through 40. He said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. So he didn't give him just the most important. He gave him the top two. And then he said, all the law and the prophets depend 
on these two commands. In other words, what's at the very heart of the law? What is it that God really desires that every one of his commands is trying to call us to? And it's this, love. Love God and love people. Later in Romans itself, in chapter 13, Paul summarizes it this way in verses 8 through 10. Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And any other commandment are summed up by this commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. He did this so that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us. So what Paul is saying is Christ Jesus set us free and granted us new life in order to fulfill the requirement of the law, which is to love. But he didn't leave us on our own to just do it according to our own power. He gave us some help. So by God's grace, not only do we have freedom instead of condemnation, not only do we have life instead of death, but also by God's grace, we have spirit instead of flesh. We have spirit instead of flesh. Now we know that it is our flesh that's been corrupted by sin. that leads us in our struggle in obedience to the law. And so if we try to keep the law just according to our own powers, according to our own efforts and our own flesh, we're going to fail every single time. And Jesus knew that. Remember, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He knew what it was like to be tempted, and he knew what it would take in order to resist temptation. He knew that we wouldn't be able to do it on our own. We would need help, every single one of us. And so the Father and the Son, Jesus, they had a plan of how to get us that help we would need. And on the night before he died, the day that the Psalms called Maundy Thursday now, and that night when he gathered together to celebrate Passover with his disciples, he told them about this help. And John recorded it in his gospel. In chapter 14, verses 15 through 17, this is what Jesus said to his closest disciples. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. Jesus directly tied our love for him with our obedience of him. Not in order to earn his love, not in order to even prove our love to him, but just out of an overflow of our love for one another that we would lovingly obey his commands. But again, he knew that our flesh would be at constant war with us to do that, so we would need help. We couldn't rely on ourselves. And so that's why he followed that by saying, I'm going to go to the Father, and I'm going to ask him, and he's going to send you another counselor. Another way to understand that word counselor is just the word helper. He's going to send you another helper. Jesus is saying, a helper like me, a helper like Jesus, but different, because Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh is limited by that flesh, and that he can't be with everyone everywhere at all times, but his spirit can. So the Father sent the Holy Spirit, his power and his presence with his people. 
that's the desire and the inner being that Paul wrote about in Romans 7. The Spirit comes and it builds that desire in us, the desire to do good. But of course we mess up, and that doesn't mean that we don't love him. It just means that we need the help to remember what it is that he has called us to do. We need that spirit of truth to come and to speak truth to us, to remind us of the truth we know, to tell us what is who we truly are and what is truly important. And when we look at him, we see that he is completely unique among everything else in our world. He is always with us to empower us, to guide us, to convict us, to comfort us, to help us. We can think about the way that the Spirit acts with us as Christ followers a little bit like a parent does when their child is learning to walk. Maybe you've experienced this in your own family or you've seen it with a younger sibling or a niece or a nephew or maybe the child of a friend. But when that young toddler begins pulling itself up, it looks like he's ready to take his first steps. Often a parent will come along and they'll take both the child's hands and theirs and they'll help them take those first steps. And they'll do that over and over and over as the child begins to learn what it's doing, to grow in its confidence, and then they'll release one of those hands. They'll just hold on with one as that child takes those steps again. And then when the child's ready, maybe they'll just help them get up, help them steady them, let them stand there alone, maybe give them a little encouraging push. They'll begin to take some steps on their own. And then that parent will get out in front of them, and they'll clap, and they'll cheer, and they'll call them to come toward them. And the child will lovingly and joyfully do so, coming toward the parent. Sometimes the child will stumble, the child will fall, the parent will pick the child back up, the parent will comfort him if it's needed. But then once that child has learned to walk, the parent's role hasn't stopped. They begin to then warn them about dangers they need to avoid, obstacles of how they can overcome, cautions they need to ensure in their life. As that child grows into young adulthood and adulthood, the parent's role isn't over they now help guide their steps through wise counsel, through teaching, to reminding them of truth and the things that they know along the way. And that's what the Spirit does for us as Christ followers. He helps us take steps of obedience. He holds our hands as we learn. He guides us along the way. He shows us dangers to avoid. And he picks us up when we fall and comforts us and puts us back on the path. So, Brick Hills. Knowing that we have freedom in Christ through the new life he has granted us, empowered by his spirit. What should we do in response to these things that we have learned? Well, first and foremost, I want to offer this. is One, if you are not yet in Christ, which means you've never turned from your sin, you've never trusted in him, you're still deserving of the condemnation for, your, for breaking God's law, then today we want to call you to become in Christ. Die to that sin, leave it behind, turn away from it, and turn to Jesus for your rescue, that he might give you new life in the spirit so that he can help you to now walk with him and battle against the effects of sin in your life. There's not a special ritual. There's not a special formula of how to do that. Just right where you are, you can call out to him. Jesus, I am a sinner and I need you. Forgive me. Rescue me. Help me. And you will find him more than ready to do just that. But then for those of us who are in Christ, there are three things I would encourage us to do in response. And the first one is this. Love freely. Love freely. 
God freed us from condemnation by condemning sin through his son so that the law's requirement might be fulfilled in us. And if we were to summarize the law in one word or phrase, it wouldn't be do, it wouldn't be do not, it would actually be love. So love freely. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Devote yourself to him. Spend time with him in prayer. Grow to know more about him through your study of his word. Walk with him. Obey him. Also, love your neighbor, love others, love brothers and sisters in Christ, love those who do not, not yet know Christ. Love yourself. We don't have condemnation. You're not condemned. Learn to extend grace to yourself that you extend to others as well. In our world today, we are so quick to offer condemnation, but that is not the way of Christ. We may want need to offer brothers and sisters conviction at times, but it's always marked by love never seeking to beat them down, but to build them up. And so love freely, love with your time, love with your service, love with your resources. But remember, one of the most loving things you can do is to help someone come to know how they too can know the love of God. So be sure to love with your words and speaking and sharing the truth of his gospel. So love freely. Secondly, live lawfully. Live lawfully. The law is good. It is helpful for us. Even who have been released from his power over us, it still has a role to play in our lives. It's still the major way in which God has given us these commands to help us know how to best love him and to love others. That's why he gives us those commands in the first place. It can be so useful for us. I started thinking about it this way recently. Um, Towards the end of last year, if, if y'all were around Brook Hills, you probably noticed that I spent a number of months in, a, in an orthopedic boot on this leg. And the reason why is because I had really injured my Achilles tendon and I was trying to keep it from fully snapping and rupturing and having to go through that because it's, it's awful. And so we were in a boot.